0: Everybody, absolutely everybody, it doesn't matter where you're from, how old you are, or what you believe, everybody loves a good underdog story. All right, when you look in the sports world, you got Rocky, Rudy, right? like the entire collective history of being a Northeast Ohio sports fan, right? Everything's an underdog around here. You look in literature, you've got Bilbo Baggins in The Hobbit. You got Cinderella, Frodo, Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, Whether it's unlikely heroes, surprise endings, or plot twists, we love it when small things make a big difference. I think we love that because we love the idea that the ending can be different from the beginning. We love the idea that God's plans, God's story is not bound by human expectations. That's where we're going this morning. So if you would, Matthew 13, you can go ahead and turn there. We'll look at it in a little bit. This is week three in a five-week series called Kingdom Parables. And each week, we've been taking a look at these parables. And if you remember, parables are these memorable stories that teach a valuable lesson in a creative way. This week, we're going to look at two very short principles that are presented as a pair. And Jesus gives us these parables as a pair um, because they're like two sides of a coin. They complement each other really well, and they describe what life is like in the kingdom of God. What life is like as a disciple of Jesus, if you really want to follow him. Together, these two parables teach us that small beginnings are no problem for a big God. Small beginnings are no problem for a big God. If you would stand with me. If you've got your copy of God's Word, go to Matthew 13. If you want to scroll there on your phone, that's good. That's the universal scrolling action, in case you didn't know, right here. looks like this. And if you want to follow along the screens behind me, that's cool too. So Matthew 13, we're going to look in verse 31. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it's larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable The kingdom of heaven is like leaven or like yeast that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Father, would you open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts? We know that your spirit wants to speak to us. It's why you gave us a Bible. And so right now, God, would you have your way in our lives. Show us what we need to see here. And I do pray, God, that as we open your word, that your spirit would speak to our hearts. And that you'd use me as a conduit for what you want to do. These are your people. This is your church. We want to have it built on your word. Bless us today in Christ's name. Amen. You guys can take a seat. So we're going to just dump right in here. Small beginnings are no problem for a big God. First reason is because Jesus' kingdom reaches wide. Jesus' kingdom reaches wide. This is the parable of the mustard seed. You saw it. Here's what Jesus has to say. He says, it's like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and hid in the field. It's the smallest of seeds, but when it is grown, it's larger than the other garden plants and becomes a tree. So much that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. So a few common elements from the last week, last couple of weeks, we see like a seed, a sower, a field, right? These sound oddly similar. Don't you get the sense that Jesus is like turning a diamond here, like trying to get you to understand the kingdom And so he like holds it and then he turns it a little bit and like a new ray of light catches it. And you're like, oh man, I didn't see it that way. And then he he turns it a little bit and it's like, oh man, there's that angle too. Like this is how Jesus teaches and this is the beauty of life in the kingdom of God. Deceptively simple and profoundly beautiful. But this is where the, the similarities stop with this one. This one is a little bit different. Jesus focuses on a grain of mustard seed and that's really the beauty of this parable. The choice of a mustard seed is an odd one because it is the smallest seed that Jesus' followers would have known about. Remember, he's out on a boat a couple yards from shore, and he's teaching to a crowd of people who have gathered to hear him. And mustard's very an odd choice. In Jesus' day, just like our day, mustard found itself on the table It was a condiment right next to the ketchup, right? Like That's how mustard is used. But unlike today, Jesus' followers, Jesus' audience would have known what a mustard plant looks like. Anybody got a mustard plant in your backyard? No? There's actually somebody in the first service. I'm like, no way. That's cool. I want to come over and see it. Here's the thing about a mustard plant that we got to know, though. Mustard plants never, ever became trees. They're short. Mustard plants, no birds ever nested in mustard plants. They weren't tall. And so for Jesus, he's drawing out this ridiculous, laughable comparison. Saying a mustard tree could, or a mustard plant could grow into a mustard tree is like saying a Fiat could become a Formula One race car. Like, doesn't happen. Or like a White Castle hamburger could be filet mignon. Like, Jesus, no, you, no, this is certainly not true. What's he doing here? He's creating tension. Laughable, awkward, confusing, ironic tension. Now why is he doing this? Because we're going to get to what he says, but we've got to understand why he's saying it. Remember, Matthew 13 is like a hinge in the Gospel of Matthew. Right? Jesus, in Matthew 13, he awakens the curious. Those on the fringe kind of leaning in. Him. But then he also irritates the cynical, those on the fringe leaning out. Those on the fringe leaning in who have spiritual hunger, who want to see Jesus, who want to see his kingdom come, and who know their desperation, and who aren't too proud to say, we need you, Jesus. Those on the fringes hear these words about a mustard seed, and their hearts go like, oh, like all of that from a mustard seed? Like, really? And then those on the fringe leaning out, Those who are proud, cynical, doubting, self-righteous, self-preserving, self-oriented. Those on the fringe leaning out and they hear all that from a mustard seed, Jesus. Really? Before he fills their heads, he exposes their hearts. More on that in a minute. So what's Jesus saying here? He's saying that the kingdom of God can be understood when you think about a mustard seed. It starts like this small seed and then it grows up to a mighty tree. So big, in fact, that birds will come and put nests in its branches. He's talking about his kingdom's reach, and the reach is wide. So let's think about this first group. We'll call them the curious. How would they have heard this? They've been waiting for a Messiah for years, God's promised one. They've followed Jesus. They've listened to his teachings. They've kind of followed him around. They were there when he turned water into wine at the wedding. They were there on the hillside when he talked about being salt and light, loving your enemies and laying up treasures in heaven. They've seen him heal a leper, call a paralytic to walk again, raise a little girl back to life. To the curious, Jesus is not a distant figure. He's an up-close, in-person, touchable, feelable teacher and friend. He's a sight-giving, dead-raising, storm-calming rabbi who loves them like they've never been loved before. And they're asking themselves, like, could this be him? Could this be the one that we've waited for? Is the kingdom come? And so he launches into this parable, and he says, the kingdom of God is like, and they're wanting him to say, like a storm, it's like a fire, it's fury, it's intense, like it topples kingdoms like Caesars, pharaohs, everybody bows before this kingdom, and it's going to set everything right with one big swipe of his hand. And Jesus says, mustard seed. You ever been there fighting to believe Jesus? The second group in the crowd, we'll call them the cynical. How would they have heard this? So they're a little more suspicious of this would-be Messiah. They've also heard Jesus' teachings. They've followed him with their arms crossed. Maybe they were in the back row at the wedding. Like water to wine or just like spiritual sleight of hand. Salt and light, love for enemies, treasures in heaven. Easy to say when you're gaining followers, Jesus. What about when it really counts? The leper, the paralytic, the little girl, easily explained with a little medical knowledge. He is a golden-tongued orator who has tapped into the lower class's sense of worthlessness, and he is leveraging it for his own platform. He is an opportunistic, calculating carpenter's son who loves them, maybe, uses them, likely, cares for them, mm, I don't know. And they're asking themselves, how long is this charade going to go on? When's he going to trip up, this pathetic little pep rally? When is it going to shut up? And he launches into this parable, and they're waiting for the betraying word, like the subtle nuance, this misplaced metaphor, so they can go, gotcha, Jesus. And he says, mustard seed. And it's easy to imagine, like, the corners of their mouth crinkle a little bit, their eyes narrow, brow furrow, and they say, "Mm, yeah, we thought so, Jesus. Nothing to worry about. Their suspicions only confirmed by this insignificant rabbi's social commentary. And so when he says mustard seed, nobody knows what to do with that. right? You got one people thinking one thing. you got another group of people thinking another thing. His family probably thinks he's crazy. We know that, Mark 3:21. They've already said like this guy, I don't know what's going on here, right? The religious establishment, the elite, the Pharisees inc- inc- accuse him of being in league with Satan. Like that's just the previous chapter, Matthew twenty one or Matthew twelve, twenty-one, twenty-four. And they go like, what do we do with this guy? He's becoming increasingly controversial. But it gets better. Now let's take a look at the birds, because there's birds that come, remember, in this mustard seed kingdom. We said this short parable about, is about the reach of the kingdom. The reach of the kingdom is disproportionate to its small beginnings. If you need to get that in a sentence, there it is. There's really only one other place in Scripture where this idea of birds nesting in a tree is used in this way. It's used in a couple of places, but only once in this way. And it's in Ezekiel 17. So, like, long, long time ago. Right? So, in Ezekiel 17, here's what's going on. You don't have to turn there. Um, God's people exiled Babylon, and God says, hey, I'm going to do something incredible. When I bring you out of exile, when I bring you out of bondage and bring you back home, it's going to be like I'm going to plant a tender shoot or like a small plant on a mountaintop. And that tender shoot is going to grow, and birds of the air are going to come, and they're going to make nests in its branches. And then what Jesus does... Is he takes that idea from Ezekiel 17 and he lifts it and he carries it over 600 years of God's people's history, and he drops it in the middle of a sermon about mustard seeds. This image, just like in Ezekiel, is this great image. It's rich, and he's talking about God's redemptive stories, like it's not always going to be bad. It's going to be good. And what Jesus says, just like that, just like Ezekiel said that, fast forward, I'm it. It's my kingdom. It's about me. And so Jesus does this amazing thing because his audience would have known what Ezekiel's promise meant. For the religious elite standing there with sneering faces, Jesus is aiming directly at them. He says the kingdom of God is bigger than you'd ever think it is, and it's filled with people that you would never expect. My kingdom is filled with sinners. Hungry, imperfect, broken, wrecked, forgiven sinners. My kingdom is not for perfect people who look like you. My kingdom is for needy people who love and want me. Quick theological aside for those of you that are into this sort of thing. There's, there's two ideas when we say the word church. Okay, This may be helpful for you. There's the visible church and the invisible church. Okay, The visible church, this is what we're doing right now. Right? North Canton Chapel, Visible Church. We meet here on Sunday mornings at 715 Whittier Avenue and like this is what we do. This is Visible Church. Like thank you for being here. Welcome. Okay? Visible. We see it. Then there's this thing called the Invisible Church. The invisible church is anyone who's ever trusted Jesus. They recognize their sin. They take ownership of it. They repent and turn and confess Christ as their Savior. The invisible church, no matter where they live, what language they speak, what continent they're on, this is the kingdom of God. Now, here's the catch. Here's what you got to know. There are people who sit in church buildings that aren't a part of the invisible church because they haven't trusted Jesus yet. And that's okay. That's what we do here. We, pre- we preach and proclaim the gospel. But the inverse is also true. There are people who are a part of the invisible church that if they walked in here on Sunday morning, you might be tempted to raise an eyebrow at them and say, what are they doing here? And one point of this mustard tree metaphor is that when it all shakes down, there will be people who you thought were a part of the kingdom, but aren't. And people who you swore would never be a part of the kingdom, but are. Because Jesus applies a different metric than we do. So he says, birds in a mustard tree? Absolutely. So that's the first parable. Small beginnings are no problem for a big God because Jesus' kingdom reaches wide. So on to the second parable. Small beginnings are no problem for a big God because Jesus' kingdom works deep. So right now, I know there's grammarians in here who are going like, dude, those are adverbs. You need an L-Y on the end of them. So if it helps you out in your bulletin, like just put like, Reaches widely or or works deeply, if that helps you. I'm sorry if I offended you. The slides were already done before I realized my error. So, Jesus' kingdom works deeply, or it works deep. So, I don't bake. Um, You don't even want me to try to bake. The only thing I ever did that came close to baking was a bowl full of goo that was supposed to be cookies, Um, But, like, it was so runny and nasty and, like, way overloaded with sugar, it could never actually possibly take the form of a cookie. So I sat in front of it with a bowl and a spoon, and it was delicious for a little bit. I don't bake. But this next parable is all about baking. The scene shifts, doesn't it? We go from outside in the garden to inside in the kitchen. And once again, we see somebody at work. But this is not somebody who's planting a seed. This is a woman who is working on dough. Look in verse 33. Here's what Jesus says. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven or yeast that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Jesus describes the actions of the woman and then he describes the result or the effect of those actions. So, just a few quick observations about the way yeast works. Yeast isn't designed to grow. Okay? It's not like a mustard seed that like you hope it does this to it. Yeast permeates. You see the difference? It's not like you can chart the growth. It permeates. It's among. And it's that way with kingdom. Jesus' kingdom is everyday people doing everyday things for a remarkable reason. And we are among. We are not apart from. The cool thing to think about is Jesus has planted you where he's planted you, whether that's vocationally, with your family, geographically. He has planted you there with incredible strategy so that you could be a part of saturating your neighborhoods, your cities, your culture, your workplace, your family. Yeast doesn't grow. It permeates. Second thing, though, yeast's effect is invisible but extensive, The parable says that after working through this dough and getting the yeast in there, that she comes out with three measures of flour. And so Bible commentators come up with all kinds of weird and wacky interpretations for why three measures of flour and what's that mean. Super quick little aside here. If you ever find yourself reading scripture and you come across an interpretation that like nobody else has had in like 2,000 years of church history and you're like, I found it. You're probably wrong, okay? So go with like the plain, simple meaning. And so what does three measures of flour look like? It's enough bread to feed 150 people. So I take that to mean a little bit goes a long way. Or if you want to put it another way, Jesus can do a lot with a little, which I find a great deal of comfort in. Jesus can do a lot with a little. I'll speak to some of you here real quick. Some of you have been, you're you're new to following Jesus or you're new to the chapel and you're going, what do I do? Like, all right, do I start a missional community? Do I show up at an ABF? Do I join a Bible study? Do I, what do I do? What do you, what do I take, missions trip? Do I, I, what do I do? And you can become like frozen and you get this thing called analysis paralysis where you just go, I'm just going to sit here on Sunday morning and like try to do something, Right? Here's my word for you. Don't try and do it all. Like, do one thing. Honor Jesus with one next step in your life. Pick one thing and honor him there and watch how it spreads like yeast through dough. We have next steps tables on the other side of that wall just for that purpose. We don't even know what our next step is. It's a process of discovery. Just pick one thing and go there. There. Third thing, and then we'll, then we'll move on. Yeast is imperceptible but irreversible. It's imperceptible, right? You don't notice that it's really working at the time. Nobody takes a bite of a sandwich and goes, dude, this yeast is incredible yeast. Right, where did you get the yeast? You don't do that, right? Because you take a bite of the sandwich and you say, that's really good. It's imperceptible, but it's also irreversible. You can't un-yeast a loaf of bread. Like, maybe you've got some, like, weird chemical thing you can do, whatever. But, like, Jesus, no, No, you can't un-yeast bread. It's irreversible. And so let me catch up on that just really quick. If yeast is imperceptible but irreversible, maybe you've been following Jesus for a while and you are disappointed in him. It's harder to kick that addiction you thought that he would help you out with. The anger that you have had in your heart for years is just simmering below the surface and it's not going away. That relationship that you have is still sour and it doesn't look like it's ever going to get better. Here's my word for you. You can't bake bread in a microwave. Jesus is working. Give him time. Don't let the enemy convince you that Jesus is powerless. Here's why the parable of the yeast is so important. One of the most subtle dangers of the Christian life is how easy it can be to fake. How many of you know what I'm talking about? You know fake Christians? Mm. Like they look so impressive. Like outside, man, their life is like squeaky clean right? They look impressive. It looks successful. They even look a little bit like Jesus. But I'm struck by how much of the New Testament, like Paul's letters, John's letters, in Jesus's teachings, it's getting past the veneer and getting to the heart of the issue. Like yeast in dough, Jesus's kingdom works deep. And so we say, Jesus, come on, move in me, do something, Right? Small beginnings are no problem for a big God because Jesus' kingdom works deep. So that's the parable of the yeast. So these two short, almost quaint parables have some really profound implications. I want to give you four of them. First implication. Jesus' kingdom is never about short-term impressiveness. It is about long-term faithfulness. Jesus' kingdom is never about short-term impressiveness. It's about long-term faithfulness. Our world has a thing for looking impressive, right? We've got an impressiveness formula and what we do for people who look impressive, right? Successful CEOs, corner office, big desk. A big house, it's a sign that you're moving up. Right? Upward mobility, bigger paycheck, a sign that you're more successful, nicer, newer car, clothes, shoes, whatever, bigger, faster, louder, better. But for Jesus, the kingdom is never about quantity. It is always about quality. It's never about power. It's about potential. That's why he starts with these small things like mustard seeds and yeast, small things, very potent The kingdom is never about short-term impressiveness, but long-term faithfulness. The Apostle Paul talks about this. He writes a letter to a church in a city called Corinth. And he says, consider your calling, right? Which is like a way of saying, hey, think about what it was like when Jesus first got a hold of your heart. And he says, not many of you were wise. Not many of you were of noble birth. Not many of you, Not you weren't this, you weren't this. And he says, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise so that, like such an important two-word phrase when you're reading your Bible, so that he would get the glory for what happens, not me. That's a tremendous insight into how God deals with his people, that it isn't about me, right? If Jesus was picking a kindergarten playground kickball team, he would go for that kid that nobody else picks, he'd pick him first. Why? Why? So, that at the end of it, when the score is all tallied up, there's no other explanation for the victory other than Jesus did it. So, he gets the glory and we get to enjoy the victory with him. There is something profoundly freeing and also something profoundly pride crushing about enjoying a victory that I had no part in achieving. And that's what Jesus is about, that's his heart. I could name pastors and churches who write books that are on the New York Times bestseller list, and maybe some of them are in, in your homes. and they look so impressive on the outside. Let me just temper that for you. If you were to apply that success metric to Jesus's ministry, Jesus would be a total failure. How do I know? Here's what I mean. right Jesus' ministry lasted three years. That's like a blink. Right? He couldn't get any friends even in his hometown. They wanted to run him out of town on a rail. He only ever had 12 followers, like 10 and a half really when you're counting because like Judas, he doesn't count and Peter, his best friend, like waffled the whole time. Jesus couldn't influence the influencers of his day, right, which is like a key to success. You got to go fly with the eagles, right? If influence the influencers. The religious establishment and the Pharisees hated him. And then probably like most damning of all, when faced with a choice, do you want Jesus or a murderer? The crowd said, well, set this guy free. We don't really like this guy too much. Not a very impressive resume, Jesus. But he is never about short-term impressiveness. He's about long-term faithfulness. And that's the kind of heart he wants for his kingdom. Second implication, Jesus' kingdom starts with You. Jesus' kingdom starts with you. I love the detail of the the idea that like the seed starts from outside and it's like put into the ground, right? The yeast, it starts from out and then it's put into the dough. Did you get that? I don't think that's an incidental detail. It works from within. Since I know nothing about baking, I had to do a little research uh, for this sermon and I came across this article and it fascinated me just because of the language that it used, okay? So I wanna read a little bit of it to you. While mixing ingredients sets the stage for the bread making process, it's the art of kneading that provides both strength and structure to the dough. When bread dough is first mixed together, proteins are managed or mangled, sorry, proteins are mangled and in no particular order. But as the dough is kneaded, the proteins build up. When kneading dough, you need to work quickly and you can't take any shortcuts. Be firm with the dough, but not rough. While there are several techniques to hand kneading, all of them involve folding and stretching the dough repeatedly. Now, you may think I'm crazy, but that sounds an awful lot like spiritual formation to me. No shortcuts. It's got to be done over time. Not rough, but firm. Stretching, folding, pulling. So I'll ask you, are you being needed by God? Is he working on you? Not did he back in the day. Is he currently working on you now? What is he teaching you about yourself, your sin, your selfishness? Because I've still got it, and I know you do too. What's he doing now, and how is he working in your heart, in your soul? How is he changing you today? It starts within you. But here's the thing, we don't like the kneading. We just want the bread. We want all the benefit with none of the brokenness. And it doesn't work that way. We've all messed up our lives. It's called sin. I'm as guilty as anybody in this room. Guiltier than some, not as guilty as others. No. We're all guilty. That's the point. We've all jacked this thing up called life. Everybody. Everybody. I need to be needed. I need to be remade. I need to be fixed. And it's when Jesus gets in and starts working that he can actually make something productive out of this thing that I call my life. Second implication, Jesus' kingdom starts with you. Third implication, Jesus' kingdom is made to grow. Now, it's made to grow. You've heard this from this stage for a year. We, we believe that the church is not an event. It's not a place. It's not a building. It is a people. The church is a people, and those people have a mission. All right? Hopefully this is not new news to you. If you are here at the North Canton Chapel, sorry, you are not at a church. You're not sitting in a church. You are a church in a building. Okay? We have a mission. That's what unites us. But I've been in ministry long enough, and I've listened, I think, well enough, where I know that there have been common objections to living a life on mission. Because mission costs, and we don't like that so much. Here are five. Don't write these down. Just, just listen, because I think, I think you'll resonate with one of these, maybe. One, first objection to not living a life on mission. Like, I don't have the time. I'm too busy. You want me to give up more of my time? You're crazy. Two, I don't have money. I'm living so close to my margin, like I don't even tithe. You want me to support a missionary? You want me to give generously to my neighbor? Third, I'm scared of what mission might cost me in my comfort. Four, how about this one? I've already done that. I've paid my dues. I've earned the right to kick my feet up. That's somebody else's job now. It's called retirement, not in the Bible when it comes to mission. How about this one? I'm not ready to live on mission because I'm not perfect. I have too many questions of my own. What if somebody asks me a question about Jesus? I don't know. So I'm just going to hold back for a while. I've said all five of those at one point and another. So if you've said any of those, you're in good company. Here's the deal, though. Everybody in this room can live on mission in one of three ways. Now, write these down. I'm going to give you three of them. Three ways that you can live on mission in this mustard seed kingdom that we find ourselves in. First, pray. Pray is actually living on mission. Pray. Pray that God would send the gospel out. Pray for disciples to be made, for churches to be planted. Pray for clarity. Pray that God would use you. Pray for an opportunity. Just pray. And you don't even have to leave your car to do that. Just open your eyes if you're driving because that would be bad. Okay? Pray. That's the first thing you can do. Pray. And then give. Pray, give. Some of you, God has made you wildly successful in business. And he's made you wildly successful in your career. And he's given you those gifts and those resources for the furtherance of his kingdom because that's the stuff that lasts. So pray and give. I I don't know how you feel about this, but I want the last dollar that I spend in my life to be on something that outlives me. Pray, give, and then thirdly, go. Pray, give, go. Some of you in this room God is working on your heart. He's put a burden in your heart. It could be like a place, a people group, a culture, an idea. Something that when you see it in your soul, you say, no, like that is not right. That is not right. God, would you do something there? That's called a burden. It's called a burden. And some of you just need a little nudge before you act on them. So consider this your nudge. Go chase it down. Don't wait for permission to do what God has already told you to do. Go. Let me give you insight on this one, just from where I sit and from what I've learned. More people live with regret for burdens they didn't pursue than for the pain those burdens caused. Does that make sense? I'll put that another way. You can chase your burdens to a life that's marked by risk, or you could chase your comfort to a life marked by predictability. More people regret this one than this one. When you think of what would happen if those 12 ordinary men and that small gathering of men and women on a hillside, if they chose comfort over risk. But aren't you glad they didn't? Honestly, like there's, it'd be double talk for me to, to say that there's nothing to risk when you follow Jesus. There's plenty to risk if you follow Jesus. You give up everything. But there's more to risk if you don't, right? You risk your joy. You risk lasting legacy. You risk his glory. And I'm going to brag on my Savior for just a minute. He has never, ever let me down for chasing a risk that he put on my heart because he is good and he is faithful, and he is good and he is faithful to you. And so he will not let you down for chasing a burden if it's his burden. Fourth implication from this text, Jesus' kingdom changes the world. Jesus' kingdom changes the world. A mustard seed eventually ends up on the dining room table. Yeast eventually becomes bread that's eaten. Jesus' kingdom changes the world. It does something. It's not just an idea. It's real. It's got skin on it, and it moves. There's no such thing as a burdenless Christian. The only question is, what's yours, and in what stage of development is it? Is he working on you? Everybody's burden is going to look a little bit different. Here's mine. I'll just give it to you. Here's my three things, right? If you want to know, like, what's really inside Brandon Marshall, here it is. Three things. When I see people without places, people without places, here's what I mean. I believe that everybody deserves the opportunity to experience the love of God in a community of committed Christ followers. And so when I see people who are living lives that are marked by loneliness and dejection and hopelessness and dead-end living, my heart breaks and says, no, that's not okay because you are a person without a place. But then it goes further. So people without places, places without churches. I believe that everybody should live within arm's reach of a local church, which is why I love our climate of church planting around here. The answer is not bigger churches. The answer is more churches. So people without places, places without churches, and then churches without presence. Like, it breaks my heart when churches lose their presence in their community because they have lost the mission of God. And my soul says, no, please, don't just become comfortable and complacent. And No, wrong kind of contentment. So if you put all that together... People without places, places without churches, churches without presence. Like, that's what I've given my life to and hopefully what I get to do for the rest of my life. That's what I believe in and it's what I want to always be about. That's how I say it. But you've got to find yours and you've got to find your way to say it. And that is a journey of discovery that is worth so much. Do not copy-paste somebody else's burden. Here's a quick tip for you if you want to get rolling on that. Ask God to help you understand what bothers you. And if nothing bothers you, say, God, open my eyes until something does, please. Ask him to help you understand what bothers you and then ask him for wisdom for how to steward that burden for his glory. So if you look in your world and you are burdened by the idea that there are kids without homes, foster care, adoption, hop on it. If you look around your world and you see hopelessness in a school, maybe it's your kids or your grandkids' school, mentoring, hop on it, go do it. You look around your world, may you look in Stark County and you say, man, homelessness is in Canton is my thing. Great, refuge of hope, get down there. You look at sex trafficking of underage girls in, our, in Stark County, which is huge if you don't know that. Good, connect with Rahab because they're making a big deal. If you look around and you see opportunity gap and dignity problems, partner with Habitat, like these are all things that are moving the ball forward for the kingdom. It could be something as simple as walking with a neighbor through a messy divorce. Just invite them over, connection. Jesus' kingdom works deeply. That's why small things are no problem for a big God, because Jesus' kingdom works deep, but it's got to be in you. Cinderella's slipper fits perfectly, right? And she dances the night away with her prince. You know the story. Bilbo and his band of unlikely friends, they see Smog the Dragon death over, right? Rocky. Well, there's like always another Rocky movie, right? There's, they just keep rolling out. You know how the story goes. Jesus' kingdom endures, and it lasts Small beginnings are no problem for a big God because Jesus' kingdom reaches wide and it works deep. Pray with me. God, you are good to send us your son. You are a father who loves us and you saw us lost and alone. Maybe we were in that spiritually curious crowd saying, okay, I'm interested, Jesus, but what do I do? And so, God, I pray right now that you would wake up our hearts. If there's any in this room right now that don't know you, that, that hear this news about kingdom and they, they hear Jesus and say, well, I, I, don't, I don't know. What's, what do I do? God, I pray that your spirit right now would work in their hearts, convict us of our sin, and show us that Jesus will carry it all for us, that he paid this price on a cross out of love for a broken and lost people, and today could be a new day for them to be a citizen of this kingdom, led by the banner of your son. I pray that you would wake up our hearts, and you would stir these like sleeping missions and burdens that are just below the surface, God. You would send us out to make much of Jesus here in Stark County. Father, we love you. You are a freedom-giving, hope-giving God. Thank you for Jesus in his name. Amen. We're going to sing a song here called Living Hope. And this is one of these songs that you sing to Jesus. You say, you are my living hope. Because he really is the only hope that we have, right? Like some of you may have tried other ones. They don't work. You know that. And so this is a worth-ship thing to Jesus. We talk about how much he's worth. So if you would stand with us and let's sing together. Christ, you are my living hope.